me personally, I was left just kind of looking to the gods saying, you know, what was it all for? And yeah, it is very difficult to answer that question because, you know, 20 years after it all began, it's kind of, you know, more or less back to square one. I think it happened more quickly than it may have because rather than fight and die to protect their government, why do so for a cause that not only you didn't believe in, but, but didn't really believe in you. I think if anything, it probably enhanced the need as it was perceived by Afghans to get out. If these people are so desperate that they're clinging to the undercarriage of a C-17, then this must be really serious. Like, if we don't already feel under threat from the incoming Taliban, then maybe we should. My guest today is Andrew Quilty, who's an Australian photojournalist, investigative journalist, and as of recently, a book author. Andrew is the recipient of eight Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley, for his work in Afghanistan, where he has been based since 2013. He also received the George Polk Award, the World Press Photo Award, and the Overseas Press Club of America Award. This is Andrew's second appearance on The Voices of War. We spoke the first time, nearly months before the fall of Kabul, about life in Afghanistan and his insights as an investigative and photojournalist. You'll find a link to that episode in the show notes. Today, however, Andrew joins me to discuss his first book, August in Kabul, which is an intimate and deeply personal account of the fall of Kabul and the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August last year. Andrew was one of a handful of foreign journalists who remained in Kabul to witness and document this event. In total, Andrew has spent nearly a decade in Afghanistan reporting on the human cost of this war and its impact on those afforded the least attention, everyday Afghans. Andrew, welcome back to The Voices of War. Thanks for having me, Maz. Well, it's been a uh, turbulent year or so since uh, the last time we spoke. Now you're in Australia. When and how did you get out of Kabul? I got out of Kabul for the first time last, late last year in, I mean, following the Taliban's return in November. I spent the couple of months that followed the Taliban's return, um, first of all, getting through the, the couple of weeks that followed the takeover and came before the, the final American uh, evacuation flight on the 31st of August. And then um, for two months following that, I was researching and um, reporting for the, for the book and then um, yeah, got out around the, the 1st of November. Right. And, and that was it? That was the last time you been in Afghanistan? No, I, um, I returned in late April this year to pack up my things and, oh. um, and left in, in late May. So mm. getting in and out for you, I guess, wasn't a major challenge? Uh, it was more of a challenge than it had been in the past. The flights into and out of Afghanistan now are more difficult than in the past, but it is, it's not impossible. Well, I guess uh, with the right passport, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the right passport and, and working out um, where to get uh, visas and, and so on these days, it's all become a little bit more complicated for, for obvious reasons. Mm. And even, I mean, you, you can't um, book flights to Afghanistan now online. You have to book them through an agent in, in Kabul and then and then pay them in cash once you're there. So, it's all, yeah, it's all a little bit more complicated than right. it has been. Okay. Mm. Pay them in cash there. So uh, you're arriving there on their good trust 
um, exactly. that you'll turn up and, uh, and pay. But I suspect they'll exactly. probably have ways and means of finding you <laughs> if you, if you weren't, uh, weren't to uh, fulfill your part of the bargain. Exactly. Uh, mate, I'd, re- I'd finished your book, uh, August and Kabul, maybe a week ago. And uh, wow, uh, congratulations, firstly, uh, for your first book. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, I can't believe it's your first book, put it that way. Uh, it's really well written. It is so emotionally loaded. Uh, and I think it's a, a timely reflection on what both you've experienced, but also what the people of Afghanistan uh, have experienced for the past 40 odd years and continue to experience now. I think it's a uh, as we kind of talked about before we started recording, it's a, I think it's a very, very powerful way to force us to reflect both on our role and responsibility and our moral duty as the West, given our long-standing involvement in that country. And I think it's a, it's a timely reminder uh, not to forget Afghanistan, which, uh, as we all sh- undoubtedly touch on, has happened to many at least. I think the title of the book makes it explicitly clear what the book is about. But what motivated it? And maybe even more importantly, what is the key message that you're trying to send with the book? Well, I had been talking about writing a book for 12 or 18 months before I started writing this one and um, with Melbourne Uni Press. And we'd been passing ideas back and forth during that time. And, and the original idea I had was going to be something more along the lines of the the rural Afghan experience mm. of the war, which was an experience that I always felt didn't get the kind of coverage that it warranted, mm. but which told a kind of central – it was a central theme of the war, that rural Afghan experience because of the way in which those who lived in rural Afghanistan experienced the war and how they responded to it and the, the way – you know, very broadly speaking, they did respond to it, was by um, a proportion of that population taking up arms and, and ultimately defeating the multinational military force that entered Afghanistan in 2001. And I think um, after the, the Doha Agreement was signed in February 2020 and things started to decline from the point of view of the, the Afghan government and the and as the international military mission started to, to wind down from their point of view as well, and as that sort of reached its crescendo in the middle of last year, and as the Taliban's military momentum gained speed through the, the, the spring and early summer of last year, to the point that it, it became quite obvious that they were, they were going to reach Kabul mm. and um, that one way or another, and at some time or another, they were almost inevitably going to take control of the country again. And it, at that point, it became clear to me that while the, the original idea for the book that I had had, or the, the idea of the theme that I had was important, it wasn't as urgent as, as mm. that which it ended up being, um, mm. that being very much a, a focused account on the the final chaotic days of the internationally backed Afghan central government and the return of the Taliban and, and then the this um, equally chaotic final withdrawal of the international forces, uh, not only international forces but the vast majority of their diplomatic missions and then a large proportion of the Afghans who had um, helped those 
military and diplomatic missions along um, along the way over the years, and and others who had, by virtue of the the work that they had mm. done over the past twenty years, were in the crosshairs of of the incoming Taliban. Mm. Mm. And so, and 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 why? I suppose. Um, I mean, it was just the. I guess the the urgency of. I mean, that that, that was such a a poignant end to a a twenty year war that was so full of uh, folly, um, and so you know, almost fitting a fitting finale mm. for the war. It, it was also, I mean, pu- purely from a, I guess a commercial sales point of view mm. this was the story that mm. most urgently needed to be retold and and i suppose the the more analytical yeah the the analyses of the of what led up to that um mm. they can they can come with time mm. what do you want the reader of the book to walk away with when they read the last page i know what i felt when i read it when i finished it but have you given that any thought? I mean, because I know you wrote it very quickly, but inevitably mm. there is a, a lot of you in this book and a lot of your own sentiment. Mm. What is that piece that you want the audience or that you hope the reader will walk away with? I suppose. I mean, it's. I guess it's, it's not common for a, a book to be written in the hope that a reader will walk away with a sense of futility, but I suppose that's, um, you know, it's, it's not that I necessarily, that I set out to want to impart that on readers, but it, just by virtue of the events and the, the way they, and the way they occurred, I think that is the, the takeaway that, mm. you know, the, what was the point of it all? And, and I mm. don't answer that question. I don't know if there is an answer to that no, question or no, if there is, it's yeah. probably different for, the, um, everyone and anyone, but me personally, I was left just kind of looking to the gods saying, you know, what was it all for? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, it is very difficult to answer that question because, you know, 20 years after it all began, it's kind of, you know, more or less back to square one. Mm. I had a recent guest though, who you put it quite neatly, uh, you know, we spent 20 years replacing the Taliban with the Taliban, uh, which... Mm. You know, it's, it's sound. It's a it's a very simple sentence to say, but that that has come at a very very significant mm-hmm. cost. Uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, the reason I asked you that question is because yes, it's exactly what the book left me with is the why, what was it all for, and not just from us as the you know militaries that have gone over to you know do our part, but yeah, for the people of Afghanistan, you know, who've just been on this continuous journey of of, of reinventing who they're going to be. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's that. In fact, that was one of those things that really came through for me in the book. Uh, and there was one. There was one example. It's not even one of the main characters uh, you discuss, but it was a um, the character of Rahimullah, a 58 year old farmer who lived mm-hmm. next to a doomed ANA outpost, but who was forced to maintain good relations with both the ANA as well as the Taliban. And I don't think, again, this is we've touched on this before, but I don't think this is an aspect of that war that is discussed enough. Mm-hmm. There's this seeming fence-sitting in rural Afghanistan that we in the in the West, broadly speaking, judge or have judged, mm-hmm. judged harshly. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe describe from your intimate understanding of rural Afghanistan why this seeming fence-sitting was part and parcel of life in Afghanistan, especially outside of the of Kabul and you know city centres? Mm-hmm. 
I think it's really simple. It, it, it's, it was a survival mechanism where you had to maintain good relations with those on both sides of the, of the conflict because on the one hand you had the day-to-day machinations of the war where the, you know, the front lines would change mm. constantly. You would have, I mean, just by virtue of the nature of the, the style of the Taliban's war, being an insurgency where the, the Taliban would make use of the local populations in order to position themselves for militarily and to su- sustain themselves mm. you know, for, with sustenance mm, and, mm, mm. and um, yeah, not only sustenance, but um, in order to you know, supply, keep their military supplies going. And the people, whether they had a, whether they favoured one side or the other politically, didn't really have a choice mm. in whether they were a party to what the Taliban needed of them. Mm. Because I mean, he who has the the guns calls the shots, right? Mm. And it simply wasn't an option as a powerless farmer or, or family in a rural district of Afghanistan, whether where the, where the war came and went for for 20 years Mm. to make a political stand Mm. if it wasn't going to harm you one day it eventually would and so both on the day-to-day level but also a a more thinking longer term once the power in Kabul changed hands or you know if the power in uh, of the central government changed hands that one day the 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 day-to-day shifts in the Mm. in the war would be I guess, formalised and that would, uh, I guess, um, create an opportunity for the opposition, Mm -hmm. in this case the Taliban at one time, now the central government, to really crack down on those who were seen to be opposing them over the years. And, I mean, you know, this caused all sorts of problems for these people themselves Mm -hmm. because they, again, they didn't have choice in the matter. And so when... They were brought in by the ANA over the last five, six, seven, eight years, or before that by the um, international forces. They, yes, of course, they'd been complicit in working with the Taliban, but what what choice did they have? And so, you know, and that was equally frustrating and difficult to to handle for those international forces, who, as you said, probably found it difficult to understand. Like, why would you stand with with this side? And not being able to see the the nuances of the situation and the and the need for a uh, this this survival mechanism because they they these people have been through this countless times before and it it is about ultimately about survival and I, I guess that's that's another answer to your previous question that you know the the theme of this book is kind of about survival any way you can and the apparent lengths that some people go to ensure their survival and the extreme risks hmm. that others will take to do so. And obviously that comes with, um, as is as I explain in the book, in, in several instances, you know, horrific results and, and death and you know, failure to survive. Hmm. No, and exactly right. And I think that your choice of characters to, to tell that pain, uh, to individualise that pain was, uh, I, I thought, very powerful. But how, how did you choose the individuals whose stories – make up the book 
because I know uh, I've heard either elsewhere or, or, or read and maybe even in the book that you've done over 100 interviews uh, in preparation for it and you selected a number of, I guess, stories that make the backbone of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, in those, you know, more than 100 interviews, many of them were with the, the characters who make up the bulk of the book and, and others were with those who contributed to my understanding of, of the circumstances while they may not be included themselves. But they were also, I suppose, characters that I considered using but who, for one reason or another, didn't flesh out that the broad experience or the broadest experience of this, this time mm. and place. And I, to answer your question, I, I guess I, I wanted to present the perspectives of a broad range of people who, who went through this time in, in this place, um, including, you know, I, I was adamant that I, I wanted a, a young woman who had benefited from the, the past 20 years, who had received a good education and who had, you know, hopes for um, studying at university and going on um, into a professional career, who would obviously be faced with significant obstacles in the future under, under a Taliban government. I wanted fighters from both sides from the Afghan government security forces and the and the Taliban, obviously. I also wanted to hear from people uh, within the government who were eyewitnesses to the to the collapse of the, the palace and the, the central government. And I also wanted to hear from people who were involved in the, the evacuation in the end, um, including American service members. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, and again, every one of those stories, as you, as you rightly point out, it's kind of the cross-section of society and that, at least in Kabul, no one remained unaffected. But I think the, the the young female, Nadia, that you write about, I think her story is particularly telling because of the internal family dynamics that the takeover of Taliban caused. Without, of course, giving away the complete narrative, can you give us the wave tops of her story? Because I think even the problems she faced are sufficient without even knowing the outcome. What type of challenges are we talking about? Yeah, and this is exactly the kind of character I was describing before or the kind of circumstances I was describing before where individuals make seemingly abhorrent decisions in order to ensure their survival or the survival of their family. And this was one of them. Nadia was 19 years old last year. She grew up in a family that came from a, a rural part of Afghanistan, but the the, the men in the family, including her father, had always been aligned with the with the government. Her father, with the Soviet-backed government in the eighties, with whom he worked as a policeman, and her brother, in the post two thousand and one period, um, who also worked as a policeman for the internationally backed uh, government. And for that reason, the family was under a lot of pressure from the Taliban. They first fled Afghanistan when the Taliban came to power in the in the 1990s because of Nadia's father's work with the Soviet-backed administration. And they did the same in 2015 this time because of her brother's association with the, the government at that time. And the same pressure that came once again from the Taliban or the, or the, you know, the new iteration of the Taliban, they eventually came back to... Afghanistan. Her brother, the policeman, had since um, made his way to Europe in 2015 with the 
the you know what we refer to as the the migration crisis that year. So they they felt that there was a level of security in that, and for that reason, they came back to Afghanistan thinking the object of the Taliban's threats was no more. So they came back, they left their house in, in rural Afghanistan, moved into Kabul where they could hide in plain sight, they thought, hide amongst the you know, five or six million residents there. And that said, they, they were still very conscious of the threat. They weren't entirely sure that, the, that although the, the brother was no longer in the picture, that the threat mm. was completely diminished. So every year or so, they would move house in order to stay ahead of the threat mm. within Kabul. But once the Taliban's return to Kabul, to power, appeared inevitable and imminent, they started to worry that where previously they had been able to run from the threat of the Taliban, they would no longer be able to run, nor once the Taliban came to Kabul would they be able to hide. Mm. So Nadia's father started to try to come up with ways of mitigating the threat. And the plan that they came up with was to hand Nadia over as a bride to a Taliban fighter in order to appease the threat mm. that still existed. Mm. And that's uh, that thought alone is, is, is absolutely scary. That this is a decision a father would make um, is, is beyond our rational comprehension, I think. But I also think Nadia ultimately end up, ends up forgiving her father, at least uh, in part, um, for making those choices because I think she also understood the reason he was making those choices was to give the cha- give the family a chance uh, of surviving, which I think really is a telling narrative of what what, what the entire book is about: is find mm-hmm. survive in whichever way you can. How widespread do you think that story is for the average Afghan woman, uh, at least in Kabul? Mm. Look, I wouldn't say it's widespread, but it's certainly not extremely isolated either. I mean, there are. The, the organisation that helped Nadia under her circumstances was inundated with with similar cases, so it's it's not unheard of. Mm. And and obviously, Afghanistan has a a culture of you know almost trading women as commodities in, into marriage. And Nadia's circumstances um, are a lot more loaded with um, threat and with, um, you know, awful possibilities and and uh, almost as a bargaining chip. Mm. I suppose it's less unheard of in the context of Afghan culture mm-hmm. than it is to us in the West. And, and I suppose maybe that has something to do with why Nadia was able to forgive her father with, for an act that to you or I seems completely implausible, unthinkable. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I, and I think it's this, this adds another shade to the grey that is Afghanistan that we try to make so black and white. And coupled with what we just talked about before about the hedging your bets for survival in rural Afghanistan, did we promise too much? Did we try too much? Was this all hubris on, broadly speaking, Western account of you know taking afghanistan into a making it a republic a democratic republic in other words you know what percentage of afghans actually really wanted what we were selling as opposed to what the taliban was offering that's a hard question i know yeah it's a hard hard one to answer look i mean the taliban weren't without support they wouldn't have 
been victorious without a level of community support, that's for sure. However, I don't think you would find many people today in Afghanistan who would be satisfied with the Taliban's capacity for governance. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you would find anyone from um, who, who lived through the Taliban's reign in the 90s through to 2001 who were satisfied with their capacity to govern. That's interesting, yeah. Okay. That said, what was appealing about the Taliban and what is still appealing about the Taliban now to some is their piety, their um, adherence to conservative cultural norms in Afghanistan, the perception that they are less corrupt than the previous government. But I don't think, I mean, I think regardless of all the imperfections of the previous government, some of the benefits that people enjoyed under their reign, and admittedly, it probably wouldn't have happened with, without the enormous level of international support, mm. particularly financial support and development support, that came in that time, which simply will never it, it won't happen during the Taliban's time and it didn't during the Taliban's previous time because they will never have the level of international legitimacy that the 2001 to 2021 government did and all the support that came with that. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that uh, you, you said that they or many Afghans found the Taliban less corrupt, uh, which again speaks to a narrative. And there's also an interesting part where you talk about uh, in the book uh, uh, of the attitudes of those installed in the Afghan government post the initial victory you know, in 2001. And you describe some of those as holding various grievances or who, who had returned from exile and now saw an opportunity to either make profit or exact revenge uh, on those with whom they had some sort of a grievance. Can you describe that a little bit? Because that, that strikes me as a particularly important point. And when I think about or re- and when I reflect on my personal experiences of the Balkans in Bosnia about this kind of elite capture, it strikes me as a rather important point about instilling belief in the justness and righteousness of the installed Afghan government. Yeah, and I, th- I think we've th- there's always been a perception from our point, point of view in the West that uh, very basically, very generally, the, the Afghan Republic was was the good mm, and mm. the Taliban was the bad and that that's a rather that, neat packaged narrative isn't it it is yeah whereas on the ground it was a lot more nuanced you know the the Afghan um, government and its international supporters were responsible for and complicit in all sorts of crimes both you know financial fraud alleged war crimes opium smuggling and production and profiteering and and deliberate mismanagement of logistics mm, and mm. you know it was a war economy and they're, they're so liable to be exploited and and it was you know, and again for your own survival right i mean you, you for your own survival <laughs> exactly a, i mean on both sides yeah, i mean there's yeah. i um you know, i met a um i met a guy working in a bookshop the other day who wanted to talk to me because his father had worked in afghanistan um ostensibly for the eu but according to this guy he said his father was actually um, responsible for making payments from the U.S. military to the Taliban to ensure safe passage from you know along along one particular route. And you know this, this is not breaking news. Mm, I mean mm. the you know the, the Australian military paid um, Matthew Khan 
the police chief in Aruzgan basically the same kind of kickbacks. I think it was twelve hundred US dollars per logistics truck from Kandahar Airfield to Tarankot to you know ensuring its its safe passage and and um, I mean, but he was our warlord. He was, and so that that was you know <laughs> it, it was considered irony, just. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was yeah, considered just reality, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, if if the same had happened on the other side, we would look at it differently, right? Just because of that whole good and evil polarity of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and how prone we are to seeing our side as good and the other side as bad. Our own biases uh, will certainly very much so. lend a hand in uh, painting that picture. You know, people played both sides of it. You know, there are certainly people who profited. You know, particularly drug smugglers, drug barons mm. who. You know, their only interest was selling their product, and and they would work with whoever they had to to ensure that they got paid. Mm. And um, whether it be the the former government or the Taliban, and mm. and the, you know, the Taliban profited out of uh, out of opium while they were in opposition because they um, so much of the production happened in areas under their control. While the government also profited from it because to get it out of the country, it had to go through areas under their control, so they would tax it or take a cut. Yes, I, was, I mean, the, the waters are incredibly muddy. Mm. So how and why did the Afghan government collapse then so quickly? I mean, it had its fingers in multiple pies and interpersonal relationships, you know, across the front lines, so to speak, kept a status quo of sorts, or am I misguided that there was really never a status quo? Was this all a, a screen, a mirage? a mirage of our own wishful thinking because the way it collapsed was just incredible. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, and, and I definitely want to touch on it. You were actually out of the country in the last, you know, up until I, I guess the, the last day before the Republic collapsed. But mm-hmm. based on what you've seen, how do you explain it? I mean, there, there's probably several answers to that. I, I think militarily, when you look back at it in hindsight, the Taliban's ascendancy seemed to develop in almost in lockstep with the withdrawal of, of international forces. And that first started, I guess, I mean, really probably in um, 2011 when the Obama's surge ended and the, that point at which there were, what, 150,000 international troops on the ground in Afghanistan, once that started to decline, I think, you know, you saw the, the ledger start to mm. shift. And I think that that started to quicken after 2014, when the international military mission, conventional military mission came to an end. And you started to see it creep up to almost parity, where you had, um, I guess it was just um, in favour of the, the government in terms of territorial control. And it kind of found a, an equilibrium there where you had the government controlling about 60% of the country, mm-hmm. the Taliban, maybe you know, 25 or 30%, and then the rest was um, contested. And then after the signing of the Doha Agreement, with all the uh, limitations that were placed on Afghan forces and on the international military mission and on their, particularly on the air support they were allowed to provide, it started to creep up towards parity. Mm. And then after Biden's April 14, I think it was, announcement in 2021 that the withdrawal would pick up pace and and conclude ultimately on the 31st of August, that's when it started to really Mm. shift and the um, 
particularly the capacity of American air support declined, that's when it just started to tilt so quickly in the favour of the Taliban. That, you know, the Taliban saw that they would attack and, the, and there would be no response mm. as there had always been from US air support. And so they'd, you know, where once they would attack and then retreat, they'd attack and attack and attack and attack and take, you know, one outpost at a time until, you know, they were just swarming all these rural districts, you know, to the point that they had all the, pretty much um, every provincial capital surrounded by the end of uh, end of July. I mean, mm. I think more quickly than even they could have predicted. And once that momentum got to a certain point, it was it was almost impossible to to halt. Mm. And um, so much so that in I heard numerous stories of uh, district centres that were abandoned by government forces before the Taliban could even reach there. Mm, mm. And, I mean, the, the momentum was such that the Taliban couldn't even keep up with their momentum, that the, the government would collapse before, you know, in, in the mm. face of that um, momentum, before it even actually reached them. And, you know, the reason reasons for that are complex as well. I mean, not only were the Americans unable to provide air support, um, as they once had been, they weren't able to pl- provide the maintenance for the afghan air force mm. and so the afghan air force you know they were trying to fill the hole left by the u.s air force and they were also trying to keep the aircraft in the air which was a task that had always fallen to maintenance contractors um international maintenance contractors <laughs> and so the i mean the afghan air force just and the and the military uh, more broadly wasn't sustainable enough to function without the support of the um, international backers who, who built it in their own mould. And that mould, having a, a foundation, you know, built over decades and decades with unlimited budgets that the Afghans just did not have. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, that would be the, I think, militarily, that's that's how it happened. Um, I think what also quickened that process was the, the lack of belief that the Republican military forces had in the government that they were defending and the government's lack of conviction in providing the the support that their military needed to defend them mm. um, or their you know simply their inability to, to do so and so in the end um, I think it happened more quickly than it may have because rather than fight and die to protect their government why do so for a cause that it's not bad. only you didn't believe in but but mm. didn't really believe in you yeah. and so yeah. it, it yeah, it, it collapsed. Um, it's scary. The House it, of Cards literally came down. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. I, I find it, I mean, it really is a true, you know, the truism of you've got the watches, we've got the time, uh, you mm-hmm. know, which we've heard time and time again, you know, coming from mm-hmm. the Taliban in one form or another, or, or at least to describe Afghanistan as the graveyard of, of mm-hmm. empires. It really has proven to be very accurate again. I mean, there was a patient waiting, and once the timelines were set, well, I mean, 31st of August, right? I mean, that's we've just got to hold out until the 31st of August, and then it's game over. Uh, it's uh, exactly. it's uh, and pulling out the principal support, mm-hmm. and when you when yeah. you then superimpose over the top of that the corruption, the interpersonal connections, the need to survive, everything else we've spoken about, it really was a mirage that just kind mm-hmm. of evaporated. But I just want to zero in now on that on that 15th of August, I guess, uh, as I mm-hmm. as I just mentioned a minute ago. You were in, in France up until the 14th, I believe. In fact, I think that was, I, I was sending you a message, a WhatsApp message to see where you are and how you're doing. 
uh, and around that time, and you said, yeah, you were in, in Paris at a, at a wedding trying to get back in. But what, why did you return, and, and how was that return for you on the 14th? Yeah, I, I, I left Paris, I think, on the 13th, and yeah, got back on the 14th, the afternoon of the 14th. <laughs> and it was, um, I mean, you know, it was, there are a few reasons why I chose to. I mean, you know, very basically, I felt like this was going to be a decision that I would have to live with for the rest of my life. And I thought, if I if I don't go back, I will I'll regret it forever, regardless of what happens. And I won't really be able to look at myself in the mirror. And that was because, you know, rather than just because of my responsibilities or whatever you want to call them, I had as a, I felt I had as a, as a journalist and a journalist who'd been there for eight years by that point, mm. my, the sense of responsibility I had to be there at this time for this, you know, momentous event and this, this event that would be, you know, looked like it was inevitable at this point. It, it was going to be the biggest quote unquote news story in, in 20 years in Afghanistan. And a huge moment in in history more broadly, but yeah, more than that, it was because of the people that were still there, including the friends who who both could leave if they wanted to, some of them did, but more importantly, those who couldn't leave or would have great difficulty doing so, and that included, you know, my obviously friends and colleagues of mine, both foreign and Afghan, but also. You know, the couple of people that, that worked at my house and, and mm. even my dog mm. and the guy I paid rent to for the house and mm. things mm. that um, I, you know, I, I just didn't want to, I, I could sense that through the communications I was having with them that they didn't feel like I was going to come back and I could I could sense the the worry that in, in their voices and I just felt like it wasn't, not going back wasn't really an option, even as a um, mm. sentimentally as a to show some sort of solidarity mm. um, by going through whatever was to come with mm. them, mm. rather than you know watching it from the safety of France or, mm. or whatever it was. And did it help? Did it help those in the in your immediate vicinity? I mean, t- t- speaking of the one of the members of staff that worked at my house, yeah, I, I was able to help him um, get to the airport and get out of the country. You know, I, I played a very small part in that, along with several others who were overseas and, and orchestrating plans for, you know, hundreds of people to get out of the country. But yeah, certainly, it's not to say that it couldn't have happened if I wasn't there, but I mean, certainly for my own mm, benefit, mm, I, mm. I was I was glad that I was able to, to help. And, and I, I don't know, I, I hope it made them feel a little bit more assured. You know, it was at a time when, um, I mean, you know how it is in Afghanistan, Afghans look upon foreigners as you know having a lot more power than we actually do to decide on day to day decisions um, to to make things happen mm. uh, up to you know much larger decisions and and at this point it was a time when foreigners you know ironically could actually make things happen that mm. ordinarily would be impossible. I mean mm. to get the guy who worked in my house, he and his family had passports, but they had no visas mm. and all of a sudden, it was possible to get them on a plane to Paris, to France, without without visas. I mean, it's unheard of. Mm. And so this, you know, this bizarre dynamic that had always played out in Afghanistan, where you know the, the foreigners are, are both, you know, the, the source of so much, um, so many problems, mm. but they, all, you know, also have the power to rectify them or address them in a way that um, Afghans, you know, simply by virtue of their 
know, the passport they carried or where they were born do not. Mm. That speaks volumes to me. I mean, uh, uh, as somebody who's been helped by foreigners to get out of mm-hmm. you know, Sarajevo on the siege, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I can, I can. And that's the reason I asked you because I wanted you to, I wanted to hear you reflect on it because I, I, I assure you that those of us who try to get out when the times are the hardest, every bit of help is eternally appreciated. Uh, so I hope mm-hmm. you know that uh, undoubtedly your efforts certainly will be appreciated as well. But there's mm-hmm. also another side, and I think that's something I will try to address with with an Afghan refugee down the track because there is a side of guilt that many of those who leave a place like Kabul under those circumstances, they were the lucky few. Mm-hmm. And I count myself a lo- one of the lucky ones who left Sarajevo uh, in 92. Mm-hmm. And again, through just, yeah, you know, familial links and networks and ability to, you know, for my parents to dig and, and knock on the mm-hmm. right doors and, you know, having the right, I guess, connections, right, which is which mm-hmm. is rather elitist in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And that does carry some guilt. And I'm sure that's something that many Afghans right now who were lucky enough to escape while being absolutely grateful for escaping mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. undoubtedly carry out of guilt. Have you had any of those kinds of conversations? Have you, have you come across that at all yet? Yeah, for sure. And it's not only guilt but also uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you, you and your family experienced this as well, in that moment where survival is the only imperative, not a lot of thought is given to what comes after mm. survival. That's right. Yeah. And so what you do have, and, and, th- and this, is, um, this, is nothing, this is not a new phenomenon, but um, what, what I am hearing is that you know, a lot of the people that did get out are, are now you know, safe and secure but they're, you know, they're isolated. They're living in countries where they know no one. They have no family for, for Afghans who are far more reliant on family structures than we are, generally speaking, in the West mm-hmm. and um, who have no status. You know, they might not speak the language. And so after survival comes, you know, that, that next much more, you know, less intense. Yeah. The day-to-day survival, mm, mm, mm. and so there's a lot of that. And you know, over the years, I've heard of countless people who, who, for example, made it to Europe in 2015, who got there and you know spent years in a queue waiting for waiting to be accepted as refugees. And and even many who did eventually they returned to Afghanistan because life, as hard as it was and is in Afghanistan, is it's still home mm. and adjusting to a, a country that is not your own w- with people who are not your family or your friends or who don't speak the same language is, I mean, yeah, just at, at that time and at a time when there was that level of intensity to live through, those were questions that, you know, people didn't have the capacity to ask of themselves and were not a priority. Mm. But, but, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that's an, another issue. The question of guilt is is certainly another and there are, I mean, I'm in contact with a number of, of Afghans who were who did get out, but who, for one reason or another, had to leave their families behind, yeah. Yeah. and who are still trying to to get them out. Yeah. And the, I mean, the bureaucratic swamp to wade through to make that happen is just, I mean, it's mind-boggling mm. for you and I, let alone for mm. you know someone in rural Afghanistan yeah. to try and navigate. It's um, yeah, incredibly difficult, and and the door that was you know flung open 
so uncharacteristically for two weeks was was then you know slammed almost completely mm. shut and is it's very hard to squeak through it at this point yeah and i think you also in the book describe moments because you were quite intimately involved in those post the fall of kabul so to speak in trying to get vulnerable afghans to the airport and you fought through the thousands of people trying to do the same uh, and you in one moment you described somebody who had an australian visa and was by all rights eligible to come out but they missed out what happened there yeah that was a um a guy who'd worked for an australian news outlet who had with the help of that news outlet been granted uh, an emergency humanitarian visa and um, who simply had to get inside the airport in order to board a, a RAF plane and get to Australia. But, I mean, that th- there were various challenges associated with that mm. mission. One was to get the visa itself, which was a gargantuan task mm. under the circumstances, and the other was getting on a plane or mm. getting in an air, getting inside the airport. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've all seen the, the footage of the, the scenes at those entry points and yeah i mean this guy's visa came you know pretty late in the piece and i was trying to facilitate getting him to the um um, australian special forces Mm -hmm. operators who were manning one of these gates and i was told get there at this time and they'll be there waiting for you to hand him over and um Sure enough, we got there with extraordinary difficulty mm. and, you know, sort of walking up and down the, the length of this sewage canal, which many of your listeners would have mm. seen footage of or heard about at, at Abbey Gate, mm. looking for the Australian soldiers. And we saw British, American, French, Canadians, Portuguese, mm. but no Australians. They'd been called off the gate at this point and they never returned. This was on the 25th of August and as it turned out, they were they were all out of Afghanistan, I think, by the 26th mm. before the bombing that occurred at that same mm. gate the following day. Mm. And you actually describe in detail the aftermath of that suicide attack at, at Abbey Gate. Uh, I think it killed 170 or, or, or more than 170 civilians and 13 US troops. Describe what the mood was in the lead up to it and what happened afterwards. Because you were, again, around there. You were very close to the incident. Uh, what happened mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't close to it on the day, but mm. I mean, the scenes I just described to you that, I mean, that was, we were right on the spot where it happened mm. 24 hours before. Right, yeah. But on the day and on the, the, the day prior when I, I was there, there had already started to be warnings about a an ISIS attack on the airport. And um, I mean, this wasn't anything particularly new in Kabul. We, you know, we get these sort of threat reports mm. every week, really. Mm. And it got to the point where you would acknowledge them and then go about your day-to-day life and, you know, maybe take some, you know, slightly change your, your patterns of behavior, but, but you would, it wouldn't interrupt your day-to-day life mm. really. And it was, I, th- I guess the, the threat was a little bit more, more acute in this situation because it was such a target-rich environment mm. for, for ISIS. There were so many international soldiers uh, vulnerable. And there was no, like the security environment had totally broken down. It was, I mean, the access to particularly American service members had never been more achievable, Mm, mm. probably, certainly in the last eight years or so. Mm, mm. And so the likelihood, 
I guess you know it was it was certainly increased, but it's also I mean it's an international airport, the perimeter of which would be I don't know twenty kilometers mm, or something, mm, mm, mm. and so we all balanced the risks and thought, well, okay, something might happen, but the chances of being in the wrong place at the wrong time is still slim. And so in the WhatsApp and signal threads that me and my other you know, journalist colleagues, foreign and, and local, were a part of, and, and security threads, you know, were sort of constantly updated with threat warnings mm. and, and so on. And then sure enough, one of them started to ping at around 6 p.m. on the 26th of August last year, and it was, um, you know, reports of a double bombing, follow-up attackers at one gate or another at the airport, but it wasn't clear for some time how, how mm. serious it was. And so I was actually, at the time when I first saw those messages, I was under, you know, very light, I suppose. Um, it wasn't detention, but I was with some Taliban fighters who wouldn't let me leave the place where I was, where I'd asked to take some photographs, and they'd, they'd asked me to they said, oh, we have to ask our commander. And so I'd been taken into this university that they were securing and, you know, waiting for his approval to, to leave. The, the irony um, that they were securing a university. Uh, exactly. Yeah. 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 And then, um, so, you know, once I was able to get free, I basically just headed, you know, as I as had become habit in these sort of situations, I'd, I headed straight for a, um, a hospital where a lot of the wounded and, and dead from these kinds of incidents would be taken. And it quickly became clear that it was it was a serious attack. I mean, it was just a constant. It was like a conveyor belt of casualties coming in, mm. and yeah, I mean, it, it probably wasn't till the next day that we realised that we you know, started hearing figures of yeah, as you said, 170 civilians, and in the end, 13 US service members. Mm. Absolutely horrendous, and and what a mm. scary time for everyone. I mean, it's a. Mm. I think that's a nuanced point that this was the closest ISIS could get to international troops, particularly U.S. troops, uh, for mm. a very long time. That's that's something that hadn't occurred to me uh, mm. as a as, you know, even just from an analysis perspective. I think it's a it's, mm. a, it's a very interesting uh, interesting point uh, to consider. And then, of course, it it created this you know um, heightened sense of threat, which played into ISIS's hands as well, where you had the U.S. you know with a hair trigger and, and ultimately conducting a, a drone strike against a, yeah. a vehicle being driven by someone they believed was wrongly believed was a, a another ISIS attacker mm. um, which it was the the last I believe it was the last drone American drone strike in Afghanistan before the withdrawal and it yeah ultimately killed tens of Indians mm. in the in the center of Kabul mm. and I think you've written about this extensively elsewhere that this kind of um, collateral damage as we would call it, was certainly a part of the undoing of the international mission. Mm. Do you still believe that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. And, and yeah, as I said, this, um, the way the Americans in this case responded to it further plays into their opponent's hands, in mm. this case ISIS, mm. who, you know, reaped the benefits of the, of the, the fallout of yet another incident of um, collateral damage. Mm. And yeah, I, I do. I think, um, you know, I, I don't know how you conduct a war that doesn't rankle the local population the way it did in Afghanistan. I suppose by more precise, more judicious soldiering. Mm -hmm. But you know, I'm also aware that war is a very, at times, imprecise activity. And even, I mean, you know, this is supposedly what drones were designed for to minimize the collateral damage mm -hmm. and the consequent fallout and 
creation of new enemies that more clumsy ground operations and dumb bombs would uh, are more liable to create. I guess the, the more heightened the, the circumstances, the more tolerance there is for collateral damage and therefore the greater the risk of you know, further undermining the, the mission, which by this point, the, the time that this drone strike was conducted was all but over. Mm-hmm. But um, it was, a, you know, sadly another somewhat apt, poignant exclamation point on the 20-year war. That's a good way to put it, yeah. The, mm-hmm. um, you've, then, you, you've spent some time in the book describing the, the, the airport and uh, you also use one of the ANSF Special Forces soldiers to describe the circumstances that he found himself. But you also use that part of the book, I think, to tell the narrative of the chaos at the airport and, of course, the images that went viral around the world of uh, Afghans holding on to American planes and, and sitting on the, uh, on the wheels, etc. Uh, and then, of course, a number of them falling to their death uh, as the plane took off. How was that incident or how were those scenes and the entire narrative surrounding those last few flights departing, how were they received by locals in Kabul that you were engaging with? I, th- I think it all contributed to the, the sense of desperation. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of these images until maybe even the, next, the, the morning after they occurred. Mm. Such was the intensity of those moments. It was, it was just so much happening on, mm. on our phones, you know, trying to keep mm-hmm. up with whatsapp threads and, and everything that was happening you know trying to keep across what was happening across Kabul in the airport with efforts to get people out with keeping in touch with foreign friends who were trying to get in the airport and out but once those images um, started to make their way into social media yeah I, I think if anything it probably enhanced the need as it was perceived by Afghans to get out if these people are so desperate that they're clinging to the undercarriage of a C-17, then this must be really serious. Like, if we don't already feel under threat from the incoming Taliban, then maybe we should. Mm, and so mm, we should get to the airport mm, and get inside at any cost. It's a mass hysteria, so, mass panic, I guess. Mass hysteria, yeah, it was. It was in that mob mentality mm. where the sum of the individual parts was just mm. – I mean, it, it, it actually could have all been a lot worse than it was, I think. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there was no – major flare-ups between the international mm. forces that were controlling the perimeter from the inside and the Taliban forces who were controlling it from the outside is just astounding. Mm. And the fact that there wasn't, you know, there are a lot of deaths and, and casualties around the airport in those two weeks, but the fact that there wasn't, you know, some real, aside from the, the bombing and the drone strike, that there wasn't some seriously monumental mass casual, casualty incidents is, is pretty astounding. Mm, mm. Mm. Could have definitely gone uh, a lot worse. Conscious of our time, so I'll, I'm going to try, mm. try bring it to an end. But um, after everything you've seen in you know, your nearly a decade uh, in Afghanistan, what's your thoughts on regime change? Can it work? And if it can, why hasn't it worked in Afghanistan, given what we know about all the foreign investment that's gone in? Oh, I can gosh. see your smirk, so uh, <laughs> well, I'm smirking at my my inability to answer the question. Um, <laughs> gosh, I mean, when, well, when when was the last time it worked in a way that is widely seen as successful? I wonder. 
that's a that's not a rhetorical question. Mm. No, I mean, I, I would say you know mm. probably Timor is the only one that we could almost yeah. uh, you know throw up as an example. However, yeah. circumstances yeah. vastly different, vastly different mm-hmm. tensions underlying it, and mm-hmm. of course, hugely different cultural dynamics mm. uh, within. Timor. And so, what 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 happened there that didn't happen in Afghanistan, or what were the I'm, I'm interviewing you now. <laughs> no, but that, no, that's a, but, but you're right. I mean, I think you're hitting on something that I'm trying to identify mm. uh, and and bring to light through the podcast is that we, mm. if you're ever going to contemplate this again, to do so with the lens of only with your own lens of how the world should look mm-hmm. is wrought with danger. Uh, and this is something mm-hmm. you and I spoke about, in fact, in our last episode. Is the mm-hmm. and I've kind of alluded to it at the, at the start. I mean, I, I put myself in this camp. You know, I. I embraced Afghanistan when I was there in rather in a rather simple narrative because I kind of had to. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. You're there to do a job. Not only do you not have the time to explore and peel back the nuance of a place, the the architecture, the machinations, everything we talked mm-hmm. about so far. You know, the hedging, the bets. It's very easy to call the gentleman I described, uh, Rahimullah. It's very easy to call him a talib. Right, because mm-hmm. undoubtedly he probably carried some IED parts at some point in time because that was what he had to do in mm-hmm. order to survive. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are many Rahimullahs out there who had mm-hmm. one son in the ANA, one in the AMP, and another mm-hmm. one in the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Again, for mm-hmm. the very same reason mm-hmm. to hedge mm-hmm. their bets. Exactly, and then I, I, ironically, it was Rahimullah who ended up being the <laughs> the go between for the Taliban and the ANA to negotiate in that village. Yeah. yeah. So his, uh, I suppose his his hedge had worked to the point that he had gained the respect of both parties to the war, to the extent that he could now be, you know, the the, the peacemaker, uh, peace broker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which again, yeah. it's uh, it's. Uh, and again, therein lies a lesson, right? Uh, mm. uh, you know, yeah, he paid his cards well. Yeah, exactly. And also, don't fight a sword with sword. It's obviously, uh, or can't fight a fire with fire, etc. Whatever the mm-hmm. whatever the the ancients have left us by way of rhetoric, uh, we should probably mm-hmm. think about it more deeply mm. than we often do. My last question yeah. to you. What, I guess, yeah, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, just one thought on that was, you know, no, none of these regime change missions happen because the, the, the main motivation is stability in that country. It's always driven by domestic political goals. And I suppose um, if, if those domestic political goals outweigh the, the, the imperatives in the country in question and the considerations of the dynamics therein, it's always going to be hard for there to be a, a lasting outcome in the mould that the invading party mm. desires, right? Mm-hmm. So the... The, the buy-in from the local population has to be overwhelmingly supportive rather than polarized mm. as it, you know, if it wasn't, it certainly became that way in Afghanistan. Mm. Yeah. And and also domestic interest from those who are instilling the regime change, as you've alluded to already, interests internally will also dictate mm-hmm. by the local social groups, their own interests will dictate mm-hmm. how they behave. Mm-hmm. You know, none of us exist in a vacuum, and I think this is something mm-hmm. that's again really important for us to double click mm-hmm. on. When we deploy as a military to a combat zone, to a war, to a peacekeeping operation, we don't exist in isolation. We become part of that ecosystem, and, and our actions will have equal and opposite reactions, mm-hmm. uh, and they will either become part of the problem or hopefully part of the solution. Mm-hmm. But without mm-hmm. understanding what your, you know, what influence you're going to have. 
mm-hmm. you know, you're just bumbling in the dark. And when you mm-hmm. don't understand the local context, either you're going to be exploited and used for local interests, or you'll just make the situation ever more uh, mm. uh, uh, worse. And, I, and I just one example mm. that I'll that I'll just throw out there: when we were in Bosnia post the war, you know, starting a CrossFit gym, as you as, as you and I chuckled uh, about last time, I was approached by local businesses saying, "Hey, let's put in a bid to the EU. I've got people who will do all the work, you know, at a third mm-hmm. of the price that we're actually going to put in the bid, and you and I will split the money." This is the parallel economy that mm-hmm. we don't consider when we come, you know, from the West. Mm-hmm. And I've seen mm-hmm. this in Iraq as well, where the, as I call it, post-violent conflict industrial complex mm-hmm. comes mm-hmm. in with its own aims and views of the world. Mm-hmm. And the locals oftentimes will kind of wet their lips going, okay, here we go, it's payday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't say this lightly because that, that undermines their plight. I don't, mean, I don't mean to do that because they're the ones that are mm-hmm. suffering and, and, and in hardship. But mm-hmm. there is a parallel economy that exists, and mm-hmm. you know when you're the cash-loaded foreigner, you know, and that's a means of survival yeah, as well. Exactly, exactly. Because you know you see this happen time and again. And you and can't you're like, judge well, people. You know, for make hay yeah. while the sun shines. <laughs> exactly, and you take it while you yeah. can because you don't know when the foreigners will either go or you know who's mm-hmm. going to conquer you next or when the next war mm-hmm. uh, will come mm-hmm. around. Uh, my last question for you, Andrew: what, What's next for you? I mean, uh, uh, well, in fact, firstly, let me ask you: How are you coping? Because Afghanistan has been your home for. A significant part of, you know, if not your life, then certainly your professional career. How are you coping with what's happening, and how are you dealing with it? Yeah, with with difficulty, for sure. Been a pretty. What happened to your dog? The dog is still in Kabul with a, a friend who's who's taken right. over the, okay. the house the house that I rented. Um, yeah, it's a. I guess it's a transition that I hadn't really anticipated the difficulties of which i'm sort of you know trying to work out on the run mm, by mm. i don't know i guess um trying to work out who i am outside of you know after afghanistan after time where you know i, I had a very clear sort of goal and purpose and quite simple life once that's all stripped away it's um yeah it's pretty naked kind of feeling mm. but i you know i'm i'm spending a lot of time around reconnecting with friends and family and, you know, taking steps to, I guess, work out who I am and, you know, what, what's important to me again, um, you know, really sort of reassessing life and priorities mm. out, outside of, outside of Afghanistan. It's, um, yeah, it's been, um, it's been pretty trying at times for sure. What's next in terms of, I mean, professionally, I really don't know at the moment, I think my biggest priority is you know, kind of coming to terms with this transition, and and I guess you know taking a bit of time for my myself that I haven't you know even though what we're talking about happened a year ago now that I, I haven't really had a chance to do. Mm. So that's I guess um, it's something that I I feel like I probably you know while. You know, getting back out there and and getting active and producing work again quickly is is very tempting. I think this is a time that I you know probably have to spend a bit more, concentrate a bit more, focus on yeah just myself I suppose mm, and yeah. before I go rushing off and following that instinct, which I I guess I am trying to recalibrate it. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting position you're in because in in, in a way, and what you mentioned. Previously, when I asked you about the guilt and shame of those 
uh, Afghans who've left. Uh, I suspect you'd probably carry some of that guilt too, undoubtedly. But I think you're in a rather unique position as a Westerner to really empathize and, and understand the plight of the refugee. Yes, you are lucky that you have the right passport. Yes, you are lucky that you have a country that you can come back to and call home, etc. But I think there's something in that. There's a really powerful narrative, at least it resonates with me as a former refugee. And even given some of the words you've used, what you recognize as pain of those who have fled uh, is really is really something that, that, that struck a chord with me. So on that note, mate, I, I, I really do in many ways feel your pain but I do wish you the best of luck and uh, I trust that we'll catch up again. Uh, this has been a very insightful conversation and the book, August in Kabul, I'll put a link obviously to it uh, in the show notes. But yeah, it's a it's an extraordinary read because it is so deeply personal and it is written by somebody who has deep personal connections and ties. And again, in my humble view, I think you tell a little bit of your story through the characters that make up the pages. And undoubtedly, this wasn't an easy thing for you to write. But uh, yeah, thank you for putting it out there and bringing Afghanistan back onto kind of center stage, uh, at least for those who choose to read the book. So thanks a lot, mate. Thanks a lot for having me, Naz. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.